You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Queen of spades, seven of diamonds, ten of diamonds, king of hearts, jack of clubs. This is what exercising your hippocampus sounds like. This guy has memorized a deck of playing cards. The hippocampus, the part of your brain that's devoted to memory. There are other areas of the brain that are part of the memory process too, but the hippocampus is central. And hippocampi got a workout at the U.S. Memory Championships, including the hippocampi owned by this guy, who actually became the U.S. Memory Champion a few years back. My name is Joshua Four. I'm the author of Moonwalking with Einstein. The title, Moonwalking with Einstein, refers to the image of just that, Einstein moonwalking. Now, do you know the moonwalk, Seth? Yeah, of course I know the moonwalk. Go on. Well, it's Michael Jackson trying to get across the stage and not making very much progress. <laughs> That's right. Can you imagine Einstein moonwalking? Only with the greatest difficulty, I have to say. <laughs> well, the image is supposed to be goofy, if that is the image that you have right now, and stick with you. That's one of Josh's secrets for winning, and we'll hear more later on the show about his techniques. But what he's prepared to reveal is summed up by the title of his book, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. Joshua, you spent a year learning techniques in order to enter the U.S. Memory Championships and attain the rank of Grand Master of Memory. Uh, what do you have to do to get that title? It's, uh, well, it's a, it's a weird story. I should start by explaining that there is this bizarre contest called the U.S. Memory Championship, which is something that I hadn't known about until I discovered it on, on Google. And the contest is basically a bunch of people who get together and compete to see who can remember the most lines of poetry, the most random numbers, the most names of strangers, the most shuffled decks of playing cards. It's quite bizarre. How, how many people compete in this uh, tournament of uh, memory? Well, there, there is an entire memory circuit. There are competitions in a dozen countries around the world that culminate every summer in a world memory championship. So this was the U.S. equivalent of the uh, worldwide competition. That's right, yes. Yeah. So there are about three dozen people who take it really seriously. So this is like maybe memorizing a professor's lecture or, or something like that, not taking notes. You just have to memorize it. Uh, what other sorts of things did they have you do? Well, one of the events is, is, is how many random numbers can you memorize in five minutes? And the U.S. record is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 250 random numbers. What, what do they do? Put them up on a screen somewhere? No, they give them to you on a piece of paper, 40 numbers to a row, and uh, 20 rows to a page. <laughs> okay. A anything else? Did they uh, have you memorize the, playing cards? Yes. Uh, one of the events is how fast can you memorize a deck of playing cards? 
And the world record in that event is 21.9 seconds. And wow. keep in mind, that is somebody who does not have any sort of an innate talent for memorizing playing cards or anything else. This is somebody who trained themselves to do this. But it's not the only thing they have to do. I mean, you can't just be a specialist in memorizing playing cards. You have to do the other tests. Oh, yeah, no, no. There, the, a world championship is a mental decathlon, quote-unquote. There are 10 events, and uh, you've got to be able to compete in all of them which is what Josh Forward did. Now, could you learn to memorize a deck of cards? All 52 or the names of everyone you've ever met? Believe it or not, anyone can develop an impressive memory. But what is memory? What are you and Josh developing so impressively? Don't worry, Josh will reveal his training for the U.S. Memory Championship later on, but also the sum total of all data on all hard disks, DVDs, thumb drives, someone's added it all up and we'll meet that someone. It's for Remembers Only on Big Picture Science. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. Everything we know about memory... Nearly everything. ...comes from studies done on one man born in 1926. Henry Gustav Moliason. But for more than half a century, he was known only by his initials. Well, none of us knew his last name until he died, so we know him as H.M. Larry Squire is a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Diego, and head of its Memory Research Laboratory. H.M. had a bicycle accident when he was seven years old and began to have seizures at the age of 10, and then at the age of 16 began to have major seizures and became quite disabled. About the age of 25, 26, he came into contact with a neurosurgeon in Hartford, Connecticut, who proposed an experimental neurosurgery to relieve the seizures. The surgery was performed in 1953 with the approval of the patient and the family. The surgery involved removal of the inner surface of the temporal lobes of the brain on both sides. It involved a number of brain structures, at the time not as well understood as they are now a structure known as the hippocampus, a structure in front of the hippocampus known as the amygdala, and structures adjacent to the hippocampus and amygdala that fall along what's called the parahippocampal gyrus. So a cluster of structures on both sides of the brain, symmetrically, were removed. His seizures were much improved, and he was able to have his seizures controlled by medication at that point forward. But what was observed was someone who forgot the daily events as fast as they occurred and he described himself as having an experience like waking from a dream. Every day is alone in itself. He couldn't remember the things that happened after surgery. So for example, he, he knew vaguely something about JFK, but nothing really. He was initially cared for by a family, and then subsequently as people aged, he was cared for in a retirement home. He was a very placid and quiet individual. Whether that was because of his amygdala damage, which is an area of the brain important for emotion, or whether it was because that was his personality, I think we're not completely sure. But he was always very comfortable, and at one point he did say that he was glad that he might be able to help other people because of what people had learned about him. It's hard to defend this surgery almost 50 years later, and indeed, it's never been repeated. A young man has both hippocampi removed, both medial temporal lobes, which are the spots about two inches in and right above your ears. In the 1950s, these areas were thought to be the source of seizures, and today we know that the hippocampus is a seizure-sensitive part of the brain. 
H.M. paid an awful price for controlling his epilepsy, namely his amnesia. Not, not the kind in which you can't remember your past, but an inability to turn short-term memory into long-term memory. H.M. knew his name. He could remember what life was like growing up in the 1940s. But events after that, well, he could recall almost nothing. H.M. lived the next five decades afloat, untethered from history and from his own life. Every time he met a friend, it was as though for the first time. He lived in the moment, the quintessential Zen master. H.M. died in 2008. Jacobo Anese is a neuroanatomist and director of the Brain Observatory at the University of California, San Diego. And Larry Squire is a neuroscientist at the same university. I like to say that HM inaugurated the modern era of memory research because before HM, memory was thought to be distributed in the brain and integrated with other perceptual and intellectual functions. And HM, first of all, told us that memory is a separable function, that it can be impaired without affecting these other functions, number one. And number two, that the medial temporal lobe structures are important. And all of this led to a, a whole bunch of discoveries and lines of research. It uh, stimulated the development of an animal model, which we had to have in order to know exactly which structures within HM's large lesion was actually the structures important for memory. He taught us the distinction between formation of new memories and the retrieval of old memories. He couldn't do the former, but he could do the latter. It taught us about the distinction between immediate memory and, and long-term memory. That is, he could have a conversation, he could repeat back seven digits, he could remember three or four objects, he could hold in mind whatever his capacity for immediate memory is, he, could, he had that. But as soon as his mind was distracted, as soon as his attention was diverted away from the, what was on, on at the moment, he would lose what he had before. He was unique because he was very helpful and he had a very... Uh, they have the right character to put up with uh, endless hours of tests and he had a sense of humor that was preserved and his identity was kept secret until in fact he passed away and, the loc and his location was kept secret. So that added to a sort of popular myth about this patient and everybody knew him only as HM. Now, Dr. Squire, the, hip the hippocampus, its structure, its shape is unique in the brain, and the word itself has a surprise meaning, and I wonder if you could just tell me what the origin of the word hippocampus is. Yeah, well, it comes from the word seahorse, and the zoological name of, of the seahorse is hippocampus. That's I incredible, and it's because the shape of the hippocampus looks like a seahorse. Yeah, if you dissect out the hippocampus, it, it has this uh, curved appearance and with a little head-like structure at the anterior aspect. So to the ancient anatomists, it had some resemblance to a seahorse. Classic anatomists also looked at the hippocampus from a gross dissection perspective. So they were not sectioning. And so when they, when they opened the brain and they saw the hippocampus from the side of the, of the ventricles, which are the, these main cavities uh, in the brain, they saw this shape. If you reconstruct now using modern imaging in 3D, it does look more like a, like a small banana, if I may say. What's the Latin word for banana? You might have to rename it. I think it. it's banana. Okay. <laughs> now, what is the role of the hippocampus in memory? If we've identified that memory may be in different parts of the brain or different parts of the brain have a different function when it comes to memory. So, Dr. Squire, what is the actual role of the hippocampus? Well, the hippocampus is part of the group of structures that was damaged in HM, and so the hippocampus is part of a set of structures that are responsible for the functions that HM lost. 
And so what the hippocampus is important for is the ability to form new memories of facts and events. We call it a declarative memory, the, the kinds of memories that we, you can declare as conscious representations. Can you give me a declarative statement that is an example of memory, just right now out of your ordinary life? Not that your life is ordinary, but if you could just <laughs> give me a statement that is a declarative statement that, that it reflects memory. Well, I remember driving myself to this interview and parking outside in the neighboring parking lot. My whole memory of the morning and getting in my car and driving, all the details, the facts, and the events of the day are examples of declarative memory. And HM could not remember what he had for breakfast when he came lunchtime. Now, I was surprised from HM you learned that um, memory may be localized in one part of the brain or in discrete parts of the brain because I thought what we were understanding about the brain, the more that we study it, is that it tends to be a distributed system, that all parts seem to need each other to work and that you can't isolate certain structures and then correlate them with function. I think the way to think about it is, is it is distributed and it's also localized and specific. The key insight from HM would be that those structures that are damaging HM are not the permanent repositories of memory. Those are not the places where memories are stored as evidenced by the simple finding that HM could recall his remote past. So those memories of the remote past have to be stored elsewhere. And the elsewhere is in the neocortex, in the outer mantle of the brain. And those memories are distributed throughout that mantle, but not randomly and not equally in different parts because the brain is highly specialized and differentiated with different parts contributing different things to the whole. So one part of the memory will be in one place, like the spatial part of the memory will be in the parietal lobe, and the visual part of the memory will be in the temporal lobe, and the auditory part of the memory will be in the superior temporal lobe, and so on and so on till we make up a whole memory. For example, if you have a memory, I was going to ask Dr. Squire, if you have a memory of a wonderful dinner you had last night that involves uh, the smell of the filet mignon sauce and it involves the redness of the tomatoes. So those, now this is declarative memory. As I recall that dinner that I had last night, these different attributes of that dinner would be distributed in different parts of the cerebral cortex. And to remember that the hippocampus would be active in recalling this information and essentially reconsolidating this memory. Now, you started this, but it sounded like you were about to ask Dr. Squire a question. Were you about to ask him a question? Well, I want a confirmation about the meal, (laughs) about the dinner, whether that is correct, that that's what's happening in my brain as I recalled my last night's dinner. Yeah, Yeah, that's the right idea, that there's going to be a visual part of it, there'll be a a spatial part of it, who was sitting where, and it'd be the smells and the taste and the memories, emotional memories and, and neutral memories, and all of that would be distributed in the neocortex, but you would need the hippocampus and the related structures to uh, work together with those distributed areas in order to have all of that persist as a memory. So is it like the central processing system? Yeah, you can think of it that way. It's a, stru- it's a set of structures that need to have a relationship with the neocortex in order for the neocortex to elaborate and consolidate and stabilize a declarative memory. What does that say about what we hear so much about, which is brain plasticity, this idea that the brain can change and that gives so many of us hope, but also the idea that parts of the brain can make up for uh, the absence of function in another part of the brain, so that when HM lost his hippocampus, maybe other part and other structures, other parts of the brain would take over. To what degree does that happen? And what is that what we mean when we say brain plasticity? Well, yeah, there's a lot 
there's a lot in that. I mean, there isn't, brain plasticity, first of all, refers to the fact that we can learn, remember, and change. Uh, we do, our brains develop, we change. We, we, we're six-year-olds, and then we're 12-year-olds, and then we're 25-year-olds. Our cognition changes. We know things at 35 that we didn't know at 25, and we know things at 65 that we didn't know at 55. I was using that term a bit too broadly to just... Well, so, yeah, well, so that's part of it. But then in terms of the specific issue of how much the brain can change in response to damage and how much one part can take over for another part, there's some of that, but it's easy to exaggerate that. I mean, HM didn't compensate. When HM lost this part of the brain, he lost the part of the brain that did a particular job, and there's not another part of the brain that can do that job. If you lose your hypothalamus, you lose the, the ability to do regulation of temperature and breathing and so there's not another part of the brain that will take over for that. The place where you can see some takeover is in the neocortex itself, and that's why one sees some recovery from strokes, for example, where part of that takeover, part of that recovery is coming from the fact that some areas are, have not been permanently damaged and they actually can recover. The cells haven't been completely lost, first of all, and second of all, because one can sometimes engage alternate strategies to achieve the same end. But that's only going to be the case for higher cognitive functions where one can imagine that there's multiple strategies to do something. When you ask about the strategy of how to remember something to convert from short-term to long-term memory, you know, there's not too many ways to do that. You okay. need the hippocampus. So I agree with that. And my view, at least, is that, in fact, I agree that the neocortex shows more plasticity because of the complexity of connections. It may be more possible to to find alternate routes to restore a function. While on the other hand, areas like the hippocampus or the hypothalamus, because they're evolutionarily more hardwired, there are only very few choices. And this is, a, for example, a central question in the study of the brain of HM, the sort of input and output of that structure that was removed. Jacobo Anese is a neuroanatomist and director of the Brain Observatory at the University of California, San Diego, which is where Larry Squire is a professor of psychiatry and neurosciences and psychology. We'll hear more from these gentlemen later in the program. You know, Molly, it's interesting and rather surprising to me that memory is localized because I, I just thought, well, whenever I thought about memory at all, that was all over the brain. I didn't realize it was like those charts they make for cows, you know, those diagrams with, with the rump steak here and the rounds over here. Here are the short ribs and there's a filet mignon. So you're not talking about a chart of a cow's brain. No, no, no. This is a cow. This is the important part of the cow, <laughs> the part that you eat. But I, I just didn't think that our brains could be mapped out like that. If it were a cow's brain, it would probably be a very small chart, I'm guessing. No but, offense to cows. Well, I think their brains are smaller than ours. There are people who do eat cow's brains, but I, I don't know what the, <laughs> that particular delicacy is called. Okay, now I have to shake the image of my brain mapped out like a cow chart. Coming up, how to remember like a champ, and I bet this guy has a cow chart memorized. We'll meet a U.S. memory champion champ. Also, computing the total data storage of the world and it's measured in exabytes. We'll explain exabyte. Remembers only on Big Picture Science. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So now you know you can point to some part of your head and say, that's memory. It's right in there somewhere. So we know where it is. Now what to do about it? Can you improve your memory the way you can, you know, build up your abs? Yes, you can. Well, maybe not like my abs. Nor mine, for that matter. (laughs) (laughs) But nearly all of us have the ability to take this remarkable faculty we have to recall the lasagna we had for dinner, our first kiss, our mother's face, and improve on it. Well, that brings us back to Josh Four. He was the U.S. memory champion in 2006, and he's going to share his secrets for the big win. And the good news is this memory whiz had no special recall skills when he began. I went to uh, have my own memory tested, just to get a sense of what my baseline abilities might be. And it's, it's hard to gauge one's memory, but my, my, my working memory was pretty much average. I, my ability to remember poetry was pretty much average. And when I subsequently came back and had my memory tested again after winning this contest, some of those scores were different. Well, let's get to the techniques you use, because that's a very interesting point. I, my own memory is, in my opinion, very poor, but what you're suggesting here is that that can be trained, at least to memorize things like a you know, long list of random numbers, or maybe playing cards, or maybe the birthdays of uh, all my relatives. Yeah. What, what, what's the technique? There are a number of techniques. They all come down to the idea that one needs to take information that is unmemorable and somehow figure out a way to transform it into information that you simply cannot let yourself forget and to encode that information more deeply using techniques. Now, how does that work? Well, a lot of the techniques that are used in these competitions involve creating vivid images that represent whatever it is you're being asked to remember and making those images so bizarre, so colorful, so weird, so smelly, so gory, so raunchy that you can't possibly forget them. Can you give me a, an example that okay. we can broadcast? Well, let's, <laughs> uh, let's see. One that you can broadcast, that's going to be tough. I mean, let's, let's just say you imagine Claudia Schiffer walking down the street naked, getting pelted with rotten tomatoes while passing gas, right? You simply would run home and have to tell your wife about that. Or maybe you wouldn't tell your wife, but you would tell somebody. You'd tell your friend. But you would remember that. You would remember it. And similarly, if you conjured up that image in your mind's eye, you would remember it. So the art of this contest is in creating those kinds of images and doing it so fast that you are basically painting this landscape in your mind's eye. And that's what these competitors are doing. Okay, so I can understand that you generate these very imaginative unforgettable images, Mm -hmm. but how does that help you remember, for example, the cards that are being dealt off a deck? Okay, so there there, there are two elements to this. One is creating those images, and the other is keeping them in order. And to do that, there is a technique that is used that goes back 2,500 years ago, supposedly, according to legend, it was invented by the Greek poet Simonides, and it's known as the Memory Palace. The Memory Palace just a place to put imagery? It is is literally a building that you have imagined in your mind's eye. And so, you know, Cicero had had hundreds of buildings that were repositories for his memories that he kept in his mind, in his imagination. The people who compete in these contests will walk into a building and size it up. Is this this a memorable building? Which is a very funny way of evaluating architecture. And if it is, they will hold on to it to use to remember something later on. 
Well, now, the reason they do this is because they need to remember the order of these images. Is that right? And so they know that if I walk in the front door, the first thing I see is maybe the, the hallway. So I'll put image one there, and I'll put image two in the uh, the living room and image four. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. And this is taking advantage of the fact that our spatial memories are actually really good. I mean, if you came over to my apartment, walked around nosily for a few minutes, peeking your head into every room, you'd walk out of my apartment knowing where the bedroom was, where the bathroom was, where the sofa was. That's actually a lot of information that you're walking out the door with, and you pick it up pretty quickly. And the idea is to essentially take a space that you know well, that you're intimately familiar with. It could be the house you grew up in. It could be the house you live in now. It could be this radio studio. And put those images, arrange them around that building. But but you have to associate the images with the cards. I mean, uh, this Claudia Schiffer image, which right. is now permanently etched in my mind, I have to say. <laughs> now, but, but how do I know whether I should associate that with the Ten of Diamonds or the Queen of Clubs or what? Okay, so uh, you've asked about one of the, the most esoteric skills that is uh, <laughs> exercised in this contest. It, you basically have to have come up with a system in advance that associates each card with an image. And there are varyingly complicated ways of doing that. Uh, when I said that there's a, an arms race, part of that arms race is figuring out ways to compress more and more information from those cards into fewer and fewer images. Do you have one image per card or you have multiple cards per image? Well, the most sophisticated system that anybody is using right now essentially allows this guy to condense six playing cards into one image. Okay, and there's some sort of mnemonic for doing that. Right? That's right, a, a, a code basically. I mean, this is this is information compression is what, what's going on can, here. Can you give me just a simple example so we know what you're talking about? Okay, well, uh, the, the system I used was called Person Action Object, and it involved associating each card with an image of a celebrity doing something to an object. So the King of Diamonds might be Bill Clinton smoking a cigar, the King of Hearts, Michael Jackson moonwalking with a diamond-studded white glove, the King of Clubs is John Goodman eating a hamburger. Now, if you see three cards in a row, like the King of Clubs, King of Hearts, King of Diamonds, you would recombine those images, uh, taking the person from the first one, the action from the second, the object from the third, to create a new image that you'd see in your mind's eye. Is it okay if we do a quickie test here to see if uh, your skills are still as sharp as they were? What what are you going to be quizzing me on? I'm going to give you a a short list of items here. It'll be fewer than two dozen. We'll give it a try. If I I fail, we'll chalk it up to the fact that I didn't get a ton of sleep last night and that I haven't (laughs) done this in about four years, but okay. Yeah. Fire away. (laughs) Was it Edward R. Murrow who said, difficulty is the one excuse that history never accepts? Right. Okay. Well, uh, (laughs) if I remember that correctly, which is probably... How fast should I read these to you, by the way? One let's, a second? You know, let's keep it slow. It's been, it's, I hung up my cleats from uh, competitive mental athletics about four years ago. So uh, I am slightly out of practice, but I should still be able to do this. So uh, fire away. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a list of about a dozen objects here. All right, hold on. Let's go. All right, here's the list. Llama. Yes. Toothbrush. Okay. Cup. Okay. Skateboard. Okay. Lollipop. Okay. Hairspray. Okay. Paperclip. Okay. Mercedes. Hold on one second. Yeah, okay, Mercedes. Lentil soup. Lentil soup, okay. Turpentine. Turpentine, okay, that's a hard one, but I'll, I, okay, yep. Ant farm. Uh, ant farm, okay. And one more, let's say skunk. Skunk. Okay, that's uh- an easy one to remember. 
<laughs> the All right, smell so of success is in the air. All right. Should give, we go back through them? Sure. Give, give, give them to me. All right. So we had llama, then toothbrush, then cup, then skateboard, lollipop, hairspray, paperclip, uh, Mercedes, lentil soup, uh, turpentine, ant farm, and skunk. Fantastic, hundred percent. All right. Yeah, that's okay. Oh. Yeah, well, you know, because well, that's good news. I was I was worried I was going to be a little bit out of shape and not be able to do it, but that's that's good. Can you tell me just a little bit, Josh, when you were preparing for this contest in which you successfully competed, how much time were you spending per day practicing your memorization skills? Every morning, between when I had my cup of coffee and I sat down with the New York Times, I'd try and spend like twenty minutes, thirty minutes, going through some sort of an exercise. To train, and sometimes that meant having a uh, an old high school yearbook that I purchased at a flea market open and going through it and trying to remember people's names. Point of advice for anybody who's considering doing this: don't use yearbooks from the 1950s because everybody looked exactly the same. Very hard, uh, or a poem, or 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 some numbers, something like that. Do you still show off at parties? I just showed off for you just now. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Joshua Four, thank you so much for a memorable interview. Thank you. Moonwalking with Einstein. Now, do you have that image in your head? Then you'll remember it as the title of Joshua Four's book, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. What's remarkable to me, Molly, is the fact that improving your memory can be done by learning this trick, that anyone can do it, and that the people who are all memory champs have all used the same trick, and that the Greeks figured this out nearly, what, 2,500 years ago. It also gets at this question of what the limit is. I mean, I wonder if there is a limit for our memories. And this brings us back to the experts, Jacobo Anese and Larry Squire. Dr. Squire, inquiring, remembering minds want to know, how much storage capacity does our mind have? The issue is not storage capacity. The issue is the effort and the techniques that it takes to remember things. Some people call this uh, storage capacity question the impossible calculation, and then they say, well, the impossible calculation has been done and there's no limit to our capacity. I mean, we don't quite know how to do the calculation because we don't know how many elements are involved. We don't know enough details about how memory actually works to know what to count. But when one considers that we have 100 billion neurons and each neuron can have as many as 10,000 synapses onto other neurons, the combinatorics are astronomical, almost infinitesimal. So So it's hard to imagine that there's any capacity problem. Okay, so the question is, Hypothetically, we could have infinite storage capacity. I know I'm using probably the wrong term there. And it comes down to how we use it, how the tricks to retain memory? Yeah, it comes down to effort, attention, technique. I just just don't know if I buy that. I think everyone feels like their memory is, when they get to a certain age, their memory is slipping away. And that just hard work wouldn't be enough to bring it back or improve it or become a world champion memorist. Well, two things happen with age, and uh, they're visible even by MRI, so they're pretty large effects. The hippocampus becomes smaller, and so does the depth of the neocortex. So there are anatomical effects that uh, one can explain, then the inability to retrieve those memories. But as Dr. Squire was saying, the study of how these structures change with age also point to the fact that it's really a question of retrieval. Well, when you say it's a function of retrieval, could you give me an example and and tell me, what do you mean by that? Well, that means that we always have a lot more information available than we can retrieve at any one time. And a lot of our forgetfulness in aged people 
is a problem of the tip of the tongue phenomenon where you say, I can't think of this person's name, but it'll come to me momentarily, that sort of thing. You've crammed everything into your closet and you think, okay, I know it's in there somewhere, but I have to go digging through the closet. So I'm, I'm making a lot of new memories, but I, I can't retrieve them? Really, it's, both things are happening. There's a retrieval problem and a storage problem. That is, we're not as good. And you can detect this after the age of 30, really. Little by little, decade by decade, we're not quite as efficient at forming new memories and we're not as efficient at retrieving them. So can you explain what is happening in the brain of these world memory champions that they're able to extend their memory in pretty stupefying capacity? And what part of the brain are they working? Well, they're working their hippocampus pretty hard. And along with these cortical areas that do the storage of the material that they're remembering. So you can really work it. You can work it like that and you can improve your memory. Uh, yeah, well, one way to think about it is that memory is the end product of cognition. So first comes vision or, or whatever sensory modality one is using, and then comes attention, and then one comes effort. And after all of that is computed and taken care of, you're left with memory. And memory is only going to be so good as your sensory analysis was. It's only going to be so good as your attention was and only so good as your effort was. So memory is the end product of all of that. And they're engaging their attention, they're engaging their motivation, they're engaging their speed, and uh, they end up with these extraordinary feats of memorization. The real fascinating question is whether there are any permanent changes in their brains that occur. This is still an open question. Do either one of you have memory tricks that you use? Uh, no, I don't bother. <laughs> I, I use a wonderful tool that's called search. And uh, what, what my trick is actually remember what key words I use to file some information. And I don't file things very orderly, but I'm somehow able to find everything I need because I store just one bit of information that it's linked to that particular file. In my everyday life, it's a bit like that as well. I, I tend to rebuild it. It may take a lot more effort to rebuild the memory, but I, I tend to do it based on a very little hint. When you say a search function, you're talking about a computer, not your own brain, meaning you rely on the external memory that so many of us have come to rely on. Uh, in a sense, yeah. I use my brain as a Google search engine. Uh, oh, so you did mean your own brain? Yes, as well. You do a search in your own brain? Yes, starting from a clue. I remember a clue, and then I search from that. Dr. Squire, does this make sense to you, that he, he Googles his own brain without a computer? Oh, that's impressive. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not saying I'm good at it, but <laughs> I get by. Yeah, I use notes, and I, I believe in this sort of uh, what we call a thought-action sequence. If you think of something you need to do, I do it right away. Otherwise, it's likely to be forgotten. Doctors Larry Squire and Jacobo Anese are old school there at their old school, which happens to be the University of California, San Diego. They don't rely on external memory as much as you might have thought. But how much of the world does, and just how much memory is out there? No discussion of memory would be complete without a discussion of your hard drive. We'll hear why even the memory wizards are outpaced by the silicon scribes. Plus, the final chapter in the most studied brain in neuroscience is going on now, building a 3D model of HM's brain. 
This program is for Remembers Only. It's Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Welcome back to Remembers Only on Big Picture Science. Well, we've heard that our memory is essentially unlimited. Now, your hippocampus may have unlimited memory, but your hard drive doesn't. Then again, every few years, you're probably investing in a bigger hard drive. You and the entire world is storing more and more information. Seth, do you have a BlackBerry? No, I don't. How do you remember things? Well, I, I do have, you know, a laptop. I have two desktop computers. So I got a lot of stuff stored in that. And by the way, I also use paper. And a pen. Yeah. <laughs> a man named Martin Hilbert has totaled up all of Seth's computer space, plus that of everybody else on the planet, six billion people. And their computers. Martin Hilbert from the University of Southern California added up all these bits and bytes. What is the difference between a bit and a byte? Well, a bit is the smallest piece of digital information, you know, a one or a zero. A byte is eight bits, and that's a convenient unit. Uh, In a text document, usually each letter is represented by a byte, eight bits. A gigabyte, on the other hand, is a billion bytes, and an exabyte, which is how Martin measures his results, is 10 to the 18th bytes. That's a billion, billion bytes. It's a billion times a gigabyte. Then there's a (laughs) zettabyte. A zettabyte is a thousand exabytes, by the way. Who makes up this stuff? The, the Greeks came up with all this. <laughs> that, that's, that's all their terminology. Those Greeks again. Yes. Well, anyway, Martin found that the world's collection of data today totals about 300 exabytes. I think you lost me at gigabyte. But, Seth, how does anybody go about calculating the world's technological capacity? You know, funny you should ask. Martin, how does anyone go about calculating the world's technological capacity, because I'm not even quite sure what that means. Well, basically for the technological capacity, you need two or three big statistics. The two big statistics you need, you need to know how many devices we have on planet Earth, so you need to count them all up. And on the other hand, you need to know the performance, the informational performance. So for example, a telephone, a mobile phone has a certain performance in kilobits per second and a broadband internet connection has another, so I have to know the performance of all the devices in the world, and then basically I just sum that up. All right. Well, uh, I'll jump to the uh, bottom line here. The bottom line is how much uh, information is out there in our society now? (laughs) We can store in 2007, we found that you can store 295 
exabytes. That's that's a number with uh, 20 zeros. So that's that is a huge number. It's difficult to understand. All right. Well, I, I think one of the interesting things here is the fact that I'm sure 100,000 years ago, uh, this number would have been quite a bit lower. And probably 10 years ago, it was quite a bit lower. Uh, how, how quickly is the amount of information in our society growing? They grow at differential speeds. Yeah, if you look at it from the long term, we talk now uh, in the last couple of minutes about storage of information. If you compare it to the historic library of Alexandria that was about uh, 2,000 years ago, each person right now on planet Earth has 80 times more information than were in the historic library of Alexandria. So that grew over historic times, of course, tremendously. And now it still grows. The information storage capacity that we have doubles around every three years. So it grows around four times faster than the economy. That's how our storage capacity in the world grows. Well, this is remarkable. I mean, these rates of growth are truly astounding. But on the other hand, are they just a consequence, an artifact, if you will, of the fact that we just really developed computers in the last few decades? And and this is just a temporary spurt, like uh, saying that, you know, once you invent the automobile, you know, it, it, in the beginning, the, the percentage growth in the number of automobiles is enormous. But, you know, after 50 years or 100 years, you know, everybody who's going to have an automobile has an automobile and the whole thing tapers off. Is this just a temporary spurt in the growth of information? That's a very interesting question, and these growth rates fluctuate, of course. We only looked at the last 20 years, so I cannot give you an answer for how that behaves over hundreds of years. But the first conclusion that we found is that the number of equipment does not matter so much anymore in none of these functions. That is to say, you have a certain amount of equipment, a certain number of equipments per person, for example, in storage devices. We have around 25 storage devices per person. And that didn't change for the last seven or eight years. And it doesn't grow anymore. It doesn't go down anymore. That includes books, videotapes, hard disk, uh, iPods, whatever you want. And this seems to be a number where we hit a level of saturation, 25 storage devices per person. However, our storage capacity is still growing. So uh, the number of devices doesn't grow anymore, but our capacity to store information grows because we can store much more on these devices. Martin, a few years ago, I wrote a very short paper on what we might say to extraterrestrials if we could somehow get in touch with them. In the past, we've, you know, bolted, if you will, greeting cards on the sides of our spacecraft. We've occasionally transmitted messages. These are all sort of like greeting cards, really. They're very, very short. They have a few pictures of what we look like, what our world is like, and so forth. But it seemed to me that since communication might be just one way, because these extraterrestrials might be very far away, that I would just send as much information as we could. And I sort of worked out how long it would take to send, you know, the Library of Congress or, or, or even the Google servers, which was my recommendation. Uh, but I, I think that this idea, although I still like it, might falter on the fact that the amount of information in our society is growing so rapidly that by the time this message got there, it would be hopelessly out of day. Right. Yes, that, that, that might be. It's, it's, it's growing very... Yeah, it's growing very... How much information is on the Google servers? Any idea? Well, most of the information that we store until now is still decentralized. It's still on the PCs. The information on PC hard disk, PCs and laptops and so forth, explain around 40-45% of all the information that's stored. The entire internet, which is on all the internet servers, let's say, the web page, is only 8% of the information that we store in the world. Can you give me some idea of how the kind of information that we're storing digitally now compares with the amount of information encoded in the DNA of all the population on the Earth? 
<laughs> yeah, that's why I was thinking when you talked about the extraterrestrials, because actually I think they must be much more interested in the information that is in our human body, which is much denser and it's much more fine-grained, it's much more interesting. I think for somebody who just tries to read information, this information must be more interesting to read <laughs> if they have to uncode it anyways. So uh, the DNA of one human body, you have uh, 60 trillion cells in your human body, uh, can store more information that we can store in all our technological devices. They're getting close to each other, but you could say the information that is in all the 60 trillion cells of one human being is right around the same that we can store in all our paper, videotapes, hard disk, and even the little microchip on the back of your credit card can store roughly around the same amount of information. So one person is a world of information in, in this sense, and, and that is also very humbling to see how how powerful nature is and the orders of magnitudes that nature works with. Well, all right, then finally, I, I, I must ask you, because the, the pace of technological improvement is still exponential. And while it may take all the computers in the world to do something that a single human brain can do now, a hundred years from now, that isn't going to be all the computers in the world. So are you uh, willing to give me some idea of what it will be like to live, say, a hundred years from now? <laughs> I can't really say how it will be like a hundred years from now. Personally, I think, yes, the computational power and these technologies are very complementary to what we are doing. We are knowing that the brain computes in a very different sense than computer. It's, it's an analog computer. It's, it has algorithms that we don't even understand. But one doesn't have to go so much in the future. Uh, basically, want to call it singularity, the singularity in this sense is almost already here because we rely on these computers so much. These computers, basically, without these computers, you can look at it from a social science perspective as well. These computers, as you know, they trigger political revolutions all over the world. So why do these come about? Well, we intermediate our social organization through these technologies. Uh, also on a personal level, you see that every day we couldn't go without it anymore. So we basically, it's a complementarity between us and our computers. And I would say during the next hundred years, we will integrate this complementarity much, much closer, be it most probably not anymore through a keyboard and a mouse pad, most probably something like brain-computer interfaces, but it will still be a complementarity, and this complementarity will be coming closer and closer during the hundred years to come, also with regard to what we do in our body and how we store information. Well, I'm glad there's still hope for Homo sapiens. Martin Hilbert, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Martin Hilbert is from the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, part of the University of Southern California. And now, the final chapter in the life of patient H.M. After he died in 2008, he donated his brain to science, which is kind of an odd way of phrasing it, since his brain was an object of science observation for 50 years. But as much as H.M. was studied, to determine what his extreme memory loss revealed about the nature of memory, questions remain. After all, the brain is a strange place. Project H.M. is an endeavor at the Brain Observatory at the University of Southern California to digitize the brain of this most famous patient, or as he's been called, the most unforgettable amnesiac of all time. In this way, his brain joins that of a thousand other patients who have donated their brains to the Brain Observatory. But HM is unique, as we are reminded by Jacobo Anese of the Brain Observatory. 
Neuroscientist Larry Squire doesn't work directly on the project, but benefits as other memory researchers do from its discoveries. Dr. Anese says a 3D map allows scientists to see the whole brain of HM, not just the areas that were removed 60 years ago. One thing that is very important is to also know not so much what happened in the area of the lesion, but what happened to areas that we know are functionally connected to the hippocampus. So to do that, we needed to be able to explore the whole brain. When you're creating a 3D model, is this a physical model? Is it a digital model? What does it look like if I were to look at it? It's a virtual model. The cutting the brain and creating the tissue slices, that you can consider it the physical collection. Uh, those tissue slices are you know, being mounted on glass slides and they're gonna be an artifact that if kept in good conditions and in a, in a vault and taken care of, they will be there for 50, hundreds, even hundreds of years. The reason why we digitized them was that to have uh, boxes with large format glass slides with a tissue belonging to the brain of HM in a closet somewhere would not have been very beneficial to the larger community. So the idea was to make it a web accessible digital collection in 2D and in 3D. So you put back the pieces that were taken out because the question would be, what would you learn about his brain if the structures that were key to memory were removed? Well, they were not removed completely. And it was already known when HM underwent an MRI scan in the early 90s that the surgeon didn't actually remove all of the hippocampus. And it was later reported that there were about two and a half centimeters left. And so by going essentially back into the brain, repeating the surgery, virtually, once you had the 3D model, we found that there is actually more hippocampal tissue that was left behind. And that was on account of the fact that hippocampus is indeed shaped as a, like a banana and not as a straight one. And therefore, the surgeon tools could have not possibly removed all of its extent. Does that mean it was active? Was what was left of his hippocampus active? Or maybe it was dead tissue? It was not dead tissue. That's what histology allows you to to corroborate. The problem was that uh, the connections to that tissue may have been completely severed. Can you give me some examples, both of you, of what some of the big questions are and what you can learn specifically about the brain by looking at HM's brain? Yeah. I mean, HM, because he was so famous and unique, the first such patient really studied carefully, he was often taken to be sort of a, an absolute zero sort of memory-impaired patient, as if you couldn't get any worse than that. And now that we have studied other patients and we know more about HM, and he was studied so much over the years, he had some ability to form new memories. It wasn't absolute zero. We've seen patients who are worse off than him. And so there's a lot of anatomical questions we can ask about exactly how far back into the brain his lesion actually went and how does he compare to other patients that we've been able to study. So we can place him sort of along a yardstick, as it were, as to how impaired he is. I agree that comparison with other patients, I think, is going to be the most important uh, part of the work. And the other thing to bear in mind is that HN died when he was 82. So the brain shows other pathologies that have nothing to do with the original surgery, but it is uh, aging. So the task will be also to try to differentiate between the effects of the lesions and the effects of aging. Did either of you meet HM before the project began? I met him as a graduate student many years ago when I was at MIT. And I met him when uh, I had received funding from the National Science Foundation and Dr. Suzanne Cormie took me to the nursing home 
He was 80, in fact. It was just two years before he died. And, and again, I got the same impression that had been written in books and articles, that he was a very sort of nice, pleasant uh, old man. And we kept company. He was having lunch. We had lunch with him. And and that's all I saw of him. And then I returned to San Diego. And the next call I received two years later was that he had passed away. Dr. Squire, what will you remember about your meeting with H.M.? Hmm. He had come to MIT to be tested for a two-week period, and our department head was introducing him to the students during breaks in the testing. And I still remember, he was about 40 years old at the time, and I remember that when I was introduced, he was sitting at a table, and he gave me this very pleasant smile. And I always thought afterwards that it was the perfect kind of expression that somebody would give if they didn't know you but thought maybe they should know you. And it was sort of this in-between. So it was appropriate to a stranger, and it was appropriate to an acquaintance. Dr. Squire, thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Neze, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Jacobo Anese is a neuroanatomist and director of the Brain Observatory at the University of California, San Diego, where Larry Squire is a professor of psychiatry, neurosciences, and psychology. Our thanks to H.M. and his family for allowing us to remember this extraordinary individual. And that's it for our program. Thanks to our producer, Gary Niederhoff, production assistant, Barbara Vance, and volunteer, Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to Remembers Only on Big Picture Science. You can find our program on iTunes and through the link on our website. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listings on our website of radio stations that carry the program. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.